Good morning and welcome. I'm glad that you're able to join us. Some of you have asked about how we're doing this. Well, the answer is we can all give thanks for Alan Reeves and for Jake and Tom McGough. They're taking care of all the technical details so that we are able to provide this. And as I mentioned last week, when it comes to the songs, the voices that you hear are your own voices from previous weeks. But I hope that you join in today because we do want this to be a genuine time of worship, not just a performance for you to watch. So if you've always wanted to dance and you felt too embarrassed, now is your chance. No one will ever know. And if your family are there with you, they already know you're embarrassing. Don't let that hold you back. Before we start, let me remind you of what we're planning for the next couple of weeks. Today, we'll finish looking at the book of Jeremiah. And then next Sunday, our focus will shift towards Easter. And Steve will be uh, leading that service. Then on Good Friday at 7 o'clock, we'll again have a short service. And then, of course, Easter Sunday morning. And both the Sunday mornings will be at 1045, just like today. Let's begin our time of worship by remembering where our confidence lies. Psalm 46 says, God is our refuge and strength, an ever-present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth give way and the mountains fall into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, and the mountains quake with their surging. Our God is more reliable and more secure than the mountains, even than the earth itself. And all of that security is delivered to us in the person of God the Son, Jesus Christ. So let's praise him together as we sing, Shout to the Lord and then, Jesus my King.
Let's pray. Father, we've been singing these songs and we're so glad of this firm ground we stand on, our Saviour Jesus and his great salvation. And even as we remind ourselves of this, we also admit to you our fears and our uncertainty. There are so many reasons for us to worry. Many of us are facing big, significant problems. We're concerned about this national situation we're in. We're concerned about our families, our jobs, our futures. And we praise you because we know you care about these things too. If you care about the ravens and the sparrows, you certainly care about the details of our lives. You gave us Jesus already to meet our greatest need. So we have no doubt you care about our other needs as well. We take a moment now to bring those needs and concerns to you. We bring them either quietly or out loud just where we are. Father, we cast all our anxiety on you because you care for us. We put our hope in you again. We trust you to care for us, your dearly loved children. Even when we don't understand, we trust your faithful character. We trust you to supply all our needs. And we ask you to do the same for our government our NHS, and everyone who's seeking to do good and support others at this time. May they come to recognize you as their only true refuge and strength. We pray this also for all those suffering from the virus itself. May you help them look up to you as their refuge and strength. And we ask all this knowing that you are the sovereign God. Amen. Before we sing again, let's join in saying together a summary of the Christian faith. It's been used by the church since its very early days. We'll say the Apostles' Creed together, and then we'll join in a song that reminds us all of these great things in the Apostles' Creed are fulfilled through Jesus Christ. He is the word of God the Father. But first, let's say the Apostles' Creed together. We believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. The third day he rose from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty.
from where he shall come to judge the living and the dead. We believe in the Holy Spirit, the holy worldwide church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. This morning we come to the end of the book of Jeremiah. It's been a long journey for us. In chapter 1, we met Jeremiah when he was just a young man, probably still a teenager. God spoke to him and commissioned him. Jeremiah was to be God's messenger. That was a daunting job for anyone, 
And Jeremiah felt overwhelmed by the responsibility of it. He didn't hesitate to tell God that. The first word we heard from Jeremiah was the word, alas. It's a word he used plenty more times in the years ahead as he spoke to God. But in chapter 1, Jeremiah told God how he felt, and God responded to that first word, alas. Jeremiah tells us how God responded. He says, Then the Lord reached out his hand and touched my mouth and said to me, Now I have put my words in your mouth. See, today I appoint you over nations and kingdoms to uproot and tear down, to destroy and overthrow, to build and to plant. The word of the Lord came to me. What do you see, Jeremiah? I see the branch of an almond tree, I replied. The Lord said to me, you have seen correctly, for I am watching to see that my word is fulfilled. Jeremiah says, alas, I'm overwhelmed. And God does two things to reassure him. First, God touches his mouth and says, I've put my words in your mouth. You don't have to see everything yourself or understand everything yourself. I see and understand everything. And I'm giving you my words. They are wise and reliable, even if nothing else is. And the second thing God does is show Jeremiah the branch of an almond tree. Almond trees were known as the watchful trees because they bloomed before any other tree. Their blossoms apparently appeared in January. So there's a play on words when God shows Jeremiah the almond branch and then says, I'm watching to see that my word is fulfilled. I'm the watchful God. And in God's case, he's not waiting passively just to see what's going to happen. Literally, the text says, I'm watching over my word to do it. God is watching, ready to act when the time is right. So when Jeremiah feels overwhelmed, God says, you have my word. And you have my promise that I will do what I say. And so, Jeremiah, you have all you need. And what is it that God's promising to do? He's promising to uproot and tear down, to destroy and overthrow, and also to build and to plant. He's going to demolish, and he's going to renew. For most of Jeremiah's career as a prophet, he had to focus on the demolition. For years, he had to warn that judgment was coming. It was because of the people's sin. Their defiance of God, their lack of concern for God's holiness and God's law. Jeremiah had to preach demolition. But he also had a message of renewal. We saw that especially in chapters 30 to 33. Those chapters are often called the book of consolation. And they give amazing promises of salvation and healing and peace. God speaks with great emotion about his love for his people. He speaks about how in his love he will gather and unite and bless his people. The high point comes in chapter 31 
where God promises a new covenant, a new relationship with him, where men and women are forgiven, but not only forgiven, they're transformed from the inside out. They're made secure and clean, not temporarily, but forever. Those promises of renewal, they're not just the high point of the book of Jeremiah, they might be the high point of the whole Old Testament. And no less important are the chapters we've looked at most recently, chapters 50 and 51, with their promise that Babylon will be destroyed. Not just the ancient city of Babylon, but ultimately every power that tries to take God's place and oppress God's people. So the point is, some of the later sections of Jeremiah point to glorious things. Those are mountaintop chapters with mountaintop promises. And in the light of those great promises, the last chapter of the book is a colossal anticlimax. It's an understatement to say we're brought back to earth with a bump at the end of the book. So let's read it together, and then we'll try to understand why the book ends this way, and how this ending is actually helpful for you and me today. So if you haven't already turned to Jeremiah 52, we're going to read the whole chapter. Zedekiah was 21 years old when he became king. And he reigned in Jerusalem for 11 years. His mother's name was Hamutal, daughter of Jeremiah. She was from Libna. He did evil in the eyes of the Lord, just as Jehoiakim had done. It was because of the Lord's anger that all this happened to Jerusalem and Judah. And in the end, he thrust them from his presence. Now, Zedekiah rebelled against the king of Babylon. So in the ninth year of Zedekiah's reign, on the tenth day of the tenth month, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, marched against Jerusalem with his whole army. They encamped outside the city and built siege works all around it. The city was kept under siege until the eleventh year of King Zedekiah. By the ninth day of the fourth month, the famine in the city had become so severe that there was no food for the people to eat. Then the city wall was broken through, and the whole army fled. They left the city at night through the gate between the two walls near the king's garden. Though the Babylonians were surrounding the city, they fled towards the Arabah. But the Babylonian army pursued King Zedekiah and overtook him in the plains of Jericho. All his soldiers were separated from him and scattered, and he was captured. He was taken to the king of Babylon at Riblah in the land of Hamath, where he pronounced sentence on him. There at Riblah, the king of Babylon killed the sons of Zedekiah before his eyes. He also killed all the officials of Judah. Then he put out Zedekiah's eyes, bound him with bronze shackles, and took him to Babylon where he put him in prison till the day of his death. On the tenth day of the fifth month, in the nineteenth year of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, 
Nebuzaradan, commander of the Imperial Guard, who served the king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem. He set fire to the temple of the Lord, the royal palace, and all the houses of Jerusalem. Every important building he burned down. The whole Babylonian army, under the commander of the Imperial Guard, broke down all the walls around Jerusalem. Nebuzaradan, the commander of the guard, carried into exile some of the poorest people and those who remained in the city, along with the rest of the craftsmen and those who had deserted to the king of Babylon. But Nebuzaradan left behind the rest of the poorest people of the land to work the vineyards and fields. The Babylonians broke up the bronze pillars, the movable stands, and the bronze sea that were at the temple of the Lord. And they carried all the bronze to Babylon. They also took away the pots, shovels, wick trimmers, sprinkling bowls, dishes, and all the bronze articles used in the temple service. The commander of the imperial guard took away the basins, censers, sprinkling bowls, pots, lampstands, dishes, and bowls used for drink offerings, all that were made of pure gold or silver. The bronze from the two pillars, the sea and the twelve bronze bulls under it, and the movable stands which King Solomon had made for the temple of the Lord was more than could be weighed. Each pillar was 18 cubits high and 12 cubits in circumference. Each was four fingers thick and hollow. The bronze capital on the top of one pillar was five cubits high and was decorated with a network and pomegranates of bronze all around. The other pillar with its pomegranates was similar. There were 96 pomegranates on the sides. The total number of pomegranates above the surrounding network was 100. The commander of the guard took as prisoners Sariah the chief priest, Zephaniah the priest next in rank, and the three doorkeepers. Of those still in the city, he took the officer in charge of the fighting man and seven royal advisors. He also took the secretary who was chief officer in charge of conscripting the people of the land, 60 of whom were found in the city. Nebuzaradan, the commander, took them all and brought them to the king of Babylon at Riblah. There at Riblah, in the land of Hamath, the king had them executed. So Judah went into captivity, away from her land. This is the number of the people Nebuchadnezzar carried into exile. In the seventh year, 3,023 Jews. In Nebuchadnezzar's 18th year, 832 people from Jerusalem. In his 23rd year, 745 Jews taken into exile by Nebuzaradan, the commander of the Imperial Guard. There were 4,600 people in all. In the 37th year of the exile of Jehoiachin, king of Judah, in the year Awel Marduk became king of Babylon, on the 25th day of the 12th month, he raised Jehoiachin, king of Judah, and freed him from prison. He spoke kindly to him and gave him a seat of honor, higher than those of the other kings who were with him in Babylon. So Jehoiachin put aside his prison clothes and for the rest of his life ate regularly at the king's table. Day by day, the king of Babylon gave Jehoiachin a regular allowance as long as he lived till the day of his death. This is God's word. 
And it's here to confront us with our only hope. I said this is God's word, and it is, but it is not Jeremiah's word. The last sentence of chapter 51 makes that clear. The message about Babylon in chapters 50 and 51 might not have been the last words of Jeremiah, but they are the last words of his recorded in this book. It may well be that Jeremiah's co-worker, Baruch the scribe, added this last chapter. It's very similar to the last chapter of 2 Kings, although not exactly the same as we'll see. And what this final chapter does is it dumps us in the real world. Maybe you've had the experience of going to a church service or maybe a concert or a party A situation where everything is uplifting and inspiring and cozy and you don't want it to end. But experiences like that do end. They always end and you have to put your coat on and then go out into the cold and the wet where you step in puddles and you get soggy feet and you feel shivery. Jeremiah 52 is the equivalent of leaving a party and going out into the cold and wet. The first readers of this book are exiles in Babylon. They have been reading big promises about the future, new covenant promises. They've been reading promises about Babylon's fall. But now, in the final section, they're landed back in the real world. We go back to the day that Jerusalem fell. And we watch all over again as God takes everything away. I said we watch all over again because we have seen this before. Chapter 39 already recorded the fall of Jerusalem. Here, we're shown it again, but we're shown it in more detail. The focus here is not just on the fact that Jerusalem fell. The focus is on how comprehensive it was. God took everything away. Everything these people knew and depended on. And we know God did it because verse 3 tells us it was because of the Lord's anger that all this happened to Jerusalem and Judah. Nebuchadnezzar and his Babylonian army are like a hammer in God's hand. But this is God's work. And the first thing God takes away is the king. Zedekiah. We've heard plenty about him in previous chapters. We call Zedekiah the marshmallow. Because he was a weak man. That's why the Babylonians made him king. Incidentally, the Jeremiah that's mentioned in verse 1 is not Jeremiah the prophet. He had no children. Zedekiah was from the royal line. He had a royal parentage. But the Babylonians intended him to be just a puppet king. But it turns out he was so weak, when his advisors put pressure on him to rebel against Babylon, he gave in to them. And he was weak when it came to God's word. He wanted to hear from God's prophet Jeremiah, 
But he never had the resolve to obey what God told him through Jeremiah. And here, the details are repeated from chapter 39. The Babylonians come down to squash Zedekiah's rebellion. And when they break through the walls of Jerusalem, Zedekiah, true to form, abandons his people and he runs. Only to be caught pretty quickly and taken to Babylon after seeing the death of his sons and then having his eyes put out. But the end of verse 11 does add one detail to what chapter 39 told us. It informs us Zedekiah died in Babylon. So what? Well, Zedekiah was the last king to reign in Judah who was descended from King David. And that is significant because God had anointed King David many years before this. And God had promised an eternal king from David's line. For generations, the people of Judah had clung to that. We're safe because one of David's descendants is on the throne. But now God has taken the king away. And God also takes away the city. We saw last week Jerusalem was a special city. Back in the book of Deuteronomy, before the Israelites ever had a land of their own, God promised he would choose a place as a dwelling for his name. That place turned out to be Jerusalem. The Psalms celebrate Jerusalem as the city of the Lord Almighty. And the people of Judah had clung to that. They felt Jerusalem's walls would never ever fall because God chose that city. How could it ever crumble? But here, God takes away the city. If you look down to verse 13, we're told that Nebuzaradan, the Babylonian commander, set fire to the temple of the Lord, the royal palace, and all the houses of Jerusalem. Every important building he burned down. The whole Babylonian army under the commander of the imperial guard broke down all the walls around Jerusalem. The city is well and truly taken away. And God also takes away the worship. We've just heard about the temple being burnt down, but verses 17 to 23 go much, much further. They itemize the contents of the temple from the two big pillars at the entrance with their very ornate engravings all the way down to the shovels to take the ash out of the altar and the wick trimmers for the candles. It's all listed in these verses in painstaking detail. Item by item, each of those temple furnishings and utensils is taken away to Babylon. And those things are not being taken to Babylon so worship of the Lord can continue there. This stuff is going to the royal treasury in Babylon. Early on in this book, in chapter 7, Jeremiah was sent to preach at the temple outside of it. 
He was given a message designed to challenge the people about their worthless worship. Now, this book has been full of how sinful the people were, and so we might be surprised that proudly sinful people would be worshiping at all. But they were. At least they thought they were. They were not neglecting the temple. The problem was they were keeping up all the rituals and ceremonies of the temple without any concern to listen to God and obey him. And in his sermon in chapter 7, Jeremiah quoted their favorite saying, this is the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. The people acted like they could live any way they wanted but rely on the temple like an exemption card. So long as they brought the right sacrifices at the right times, so long as the priests offered those sacrifices in the right way, there'd be no consequences for their sin. Now, the temple and its sacrifices were there to make provision for people's sin. God had set the whole system up. It was good. It was his merciful provision for repentant sinners. But the temple was never intended as a cover for the unrepentant. It wasn't there so defiant sinners could continue in their sin and be safe from the consequences. But that's how the people of Judah had come to treat the temple. And now God takes it away. Not just the building itself, but every last bowl and shovel is taken away. And then God takes away the leaders. Look down to verse 24. The commander of the guard took as prisoners Sariah, the chief priest, Zephaniah, the priest next in rank, and the three doorkeepers. Of those still in the city, he took the officer in charge of the fighting man and seven royal advisors. He also took the secretary, who was chief officer in charge of conscripting the people of the land, 60 of whom were found in the city. Nebuzaradan, the commander, took them all and brought them to the king of Babylon at Riblah. There at Riblah, in the land of Hamath, the king had them executed. That's pretty comprehensive. The religious leaders, the military leaders, and the political leaders. They're not just exiled where they might reorganize themselves and lead the people in exile. They're executed, gone for good. Then verses 28 to 30 give some details of those who were exiled. And you'll notice the numbers mentioned are actually quite small. But I think what's going on here is we're being given a supplement to the figures in 2 Kings. 2 Kings chapter 25 gives us much higher numbers. But they're taken from the 8th and the 19th years of Nebuchadnezzar's reign. Here, we're given numbers from the 7th 18th and 23rd year. So we're being shown how thoroughly the Babylonians went about this. If we add these numbers to the ones in Kings, and I think that's what we're meant to do, 
Altogether, they show how Judah was gutted in terms of its human potential. That is the real world the first readers of this book are living in. It's bleak. The things they'd held on to have all been taken away. God himself has systematically removed all the things they relied on. It's like he was working down a list of whatever these people might trust in, and he's removing the items on that list line by line. So what is left? Is anything left? Well, in this book, all that's left is a curious little note at the end of the chapter. Look again at the last verses, verses 31 to 34. In the 37th year of the exile of Jehoiachin, king of Judah, in the year Awel Marduk became king of Babylon, on the 25th day of the 12th month, he released Literally, he lifted up the head of Jehoiachin, king of Judah, and freed him from prison. He spoke kindly to him and gave him a seat of honor higher than those of the other kings who were with him in Babylon. So Jehoiachin put aside his prison clothes and for the rest of his life ate regularly at the king's table. Day by day, the king of Babylon gave Jehoiachin a regular allowance as long as he lived till the day of his death. This final note is curious because if we've been following this passage from the beginning, we might be asking, hold on, wasn't Zedekiah the king? Where did this guy Jehoiachin come from? We know the marshmallow, but who is this? The answer is he was Zedekiah's predecessor as king of Judah. Before the final destruction of Jerusalem, the Babylonians had taken Jehoiachin away. And he sat in prison for 11 years in Babylon while Zedekiah reigned in Jerusalem. Jehoiachin was out of the picture. And no doubt, he was out of mind as well for the people of Judah. But here, with Zedekiah long dead, and having been in prison himself for 37 years at this point, Jehoiachin is released from prison. And he's given a place of honor in Babylon. Archaeologists have found Babylonian records which tell us the same thing. Those records refer to Jehoiachin as king of the Jews. So in this passage where God has taken everything away, here, God raises up the king. Of course, on the ground, it's the Babylonian ruler Awel Marduk who does that. Just like it was Nebuchadnezzar who took everything away from Jerusalem. But ultimately, it's God who's behind both the taking away and the raising up. And in reality, this is a small thing. Jehoiachin is raised up from prison, but he's still a captive. He's just slightly better dressed than he had been, with slightly better food and some pocket money. 
And verse 34 reminds us Jehoiachin died. His brief time of being raised up didn't lead to anything. So what are we to make of this? Well, remember what we've seen. God has stripped away everything the people of Judah depended on. Everything they put their hope in. The king, the city, the worship, the leaders. Those are all good things God had given them. But over time, the people put their hope in those things. Rather than putting their hope in God, they idolized those good things. And God took them all away. He did it. So all they'd have left to put their hope in is God himself. Remember, he's made wonderful promises for the future. And their only hope now is the faithful character of God. Everything else is gone. And now, as a token of his faithfulness, as a little sign to them, God raises up King Jehoiachin. As small as it is, it is a significant sign. Because Jehoiachin is a descendant of David. Zedekiah was the last of David's descendants to sit on the throne of Judah. But when everyone has forgotten about Jehoiachin, God raises him up to reassure the people the promises are still in place. I haven't forgotten. Trust me. Trust my faithfulness. I am your only hope. You have nothing else left to hope in. The raising up of Jehoiachin was a brief little light in a dark situation. It was brief because when he died, there was no king descended from David, not for around 550 years. Jehoiachin had descendants, he did have children, but none of them became king. The little light that went on when Jehoiachin was raised up, it went out again for 550 years. And then it came on again on the first page of the New Testament. Matthew chapter 1 tells us this. After the exile to Babylon, Jeconiah, who is also known as Jehoiachin, was the father of Shealtiel. Shealtiel, the father of Zerubbabel. Zerubbabel, the father of Abihud. Abihud, the father of Eliakim. Eliakim, the father of Azor. Azor, the father of Zadok. Zadok, the father of Akim. Akim, the father of Elihud. Elihud, the father of Eleazar. Eleazar, the father of Matan. Matan, the father of Jacob. And Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom was born Jesus, who was called the Messiah. At the end of Jeremiah, God took everything away. 
until his faithfulness was all there was to trust in. And 550 years later, God again raised up the king. But this time, it wasn't just for a few years, like it was with Jehoiachin. When God raised up Jesus the Messiah, he raised up the light of the world that will never go out. Even death on a cross couldn't put out this light. In his sermon on the day of Pentecost, the apostle Peter told the crowds in Jerusalem, God raised Jesus from the dead because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. Impossible. Why? Because in Jesus Christ, all God's promises are fulfilled. He is the king who will reign forever at his father's side. He's the one who has opened the new Jerusalem for us through his death for our sin. He's the one who makes it possible for us to enjoy true worship, true fellowship with God. We approach God's throne with confidence through Jesus, our great high priest. And Jesus is the leader who has gone ahead of us. He has faced the temptations and the losses and the trials that you have to face. He faced the final challenge of death. He came out the other side of it all. And he will lead us through it all. The book of Hebrews calls him the pioneer and perfecter of faith. Sometimes everything that you and I hope and depend on is taken away. To some degree, we're seeing that at the moment. Can we depend on our job security anymore? Can we depend on our neighbors helping us out? Can we depend on our health service being able to manage what's going on? Can we depend on our government making all the right decisions? In many cases, they're doing their absolute best. I have no doubt at all. And they deserve our support and our gratitude for what they're doing. Absolutely they do. Let's applaud them every chance we get. But don't the structures of our society feel so much less solid today than they did only a few weeks ago? Look at the queues in the supermarkets and see how confident people are about our food supply. In a general sense, many of the things we depend on are being at the very least weakened, if not taken away completely. But more personally even, maybe you're experiencing this in a much more acute way. The loss of something or someone close to you. In the midst of this national crisis, you're facing a personal one.
And when our circumstances take that kind of a turn, what it really does is show us what's been true all along. The only one we can depend on is God himself. His faithfulness. In ancient Israel, the king, the city, the religious ceremonies, those things were good. But even when they seemed to be rock solid, even then, God was the only truly solid rock. And it's the same for us. When there are no storms in our lives, we can convince ourselves that lots of things are dependable. But when the storm comes and sweeps all those things away, then we can see God is all that's left. And he is more than enough. He's the God who rules and cares. He told Jeremiah, I am watching over my word to do it. And he says the same thing to us. So let's put our hope in him. And I know, I know that is not a simple thing. Someone has said, hope is a skill that takes practice. That's especially true when we're putting our hope in God who we cannot see. We're quick to put our hope in things we can see. Putting our hope in God is a skill that takes practice. And here's how we practice. We look at Jesus. When God raised up Jehoiachin, he was giving the ancient Israelites a token of his faithfulness. They could look at Jehoiachin and they could have hope. But God has given us someone infinitely better to look at. In Jesus Christ, we have the ever-living King who delivers God's promises to us. He has begun to do that and he will finish the job because death cannot end his work. Death has no power over him. We'll soon be celebrating that truth at Easter. God raised Jesus up to raise us up to inherit all God has promised. So whether we're surrounded right now with good people and good things or if those things are being taken away from us, all of us this week, let's look at Jesus. Let's remind ourselves who he is. And as we look at Jesus, let's practice putting our hope in God. Our last song helps us to do that. And so wherever you are, let's all join together in singing this song of hope and trust in God. Behold our God.
So let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of faith. And to the King eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen.